traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline, Episode B44, Edessa. Of the Romans who survived the carnage, 10,000 managed to straggle back to Antioch. Another 10,000 fell to the Iranians as prisoners of war. Never before did Iran have to cope with such an influx of prisoners. They could not be imprisoned anywhere in their western borderlands, within reach of any rescue attempt. There was also always the danger that so large a body of prisoners, so close to Roman territory, might break free and fight their way back home. The lesson of Xenophon's 10,000 under an earlier Persian empire would not have been lost on their successors. But the earlier Persian Empire did supply precedents of what to do with prisoners from the troublesome West. Deport them to the remote East. Accordingly, the Roman 10,000 were taken to Margiana, on the northeastern fringes of the Parthian Empire. This is how historian Warwick Ball describes the fate of Crassus's legions after their bitter defeat at the Battle of Carrhae in 53 BC. And just like Carrhae was only a stone's throw from the provincial capital of Edessa, thoughts of Crassus must have been very close for Valerian. If ever a spot could legitimately be considered inimical to the Roman cause, it was the patch of land onto which he was leading his army. Closer than Carai, only 60 miles from Zugma, was the major city of Edessa. Like Dura, it was a Seleucid foundation, built on a Macedonian military grid plan. But later, with the Seleucid decline, it had been dominated by Nabataean Arabs. An early ruler, Abgar II, had either helped the Parthians destroy Crassus' army or fought with Crassus against the Parthians. The sources disagree. That ambiguity sets the tone for the next 300 years, as the Abgarid kings walked a tightrope between the two empires. 
Like Palmyra, there were cults of Nebo and Bel, and the city also held many Jews. But Edessa was known for its devotion to Christianity. Not only had it hosted a Christian council way back during the 190s, but Arab Edessa was a strong contender for world's first Christian kingdom. Its most famous king, Abgar the Great, had supposedly been converted to Christianity through the efforts of an eclectic holy man named Bardizon. The experiment had ended in 213, when Karakal had killed Abgar's son, Abgar IX, annexed Edessa, and hounded Bardizon into Armenian exile. And, well, once Edessa was a Roman city, the lives of its Christians became more complicated. While most recent emperors had no Christian position, and Severus Alexander was downright supportive, the reigns of Thrax, Decius, and even Valerian featured major bouts of repression. While we're here, it's also worth mentioning that one Roman emperor may have actually been Christian. Philip the Arab is recorded by Eusebius as attending church services and taking confession. But if so, he'd kept his beliefs very much on the down-low. As historian Warwick Ball suggests, he was hardly going to publicize some obscure Eastern belief in the heart of Rome so soon after Elagabalus's debacle. The bipolarity of imperial policy led to a gradual shift of Christian leadership. From volatile Edessa to the relative safety and greater tolerance of nearby Sassanid Arbella. Of course, if the people of Edessa were currently asked to free associate about the Sassanids, it's a safe bet that terms like safety and tolerance wouldn't exactly leap to mind. They were trapped, encircled, and under siege and their last hopes of avoiding death or captivity lay in the relatively capable hands of the Emperor Valerian. Unfortunately, Western accounts of Valerian's actions are scanty and not exactly glowing. Gibbon blames Valerian's advisors for giving him weak or wicked counsels, while Zosimus describes him as effeminate and indolent and claims he was captured while approaching Shapur to bribe or beg him for peace. The only remotely flattering account is the one provided by Shapur. His inscription records that in the third campaign, when we were besieging Karai and Edessa, Valerian Caesar marched against us. He had with him a force of 70,000. And beyond Karai and Edessa, we had a great battle with Valerian Caesar. We made prisoner ourselves with our own hands, Valerian Caesar, and the others, chiefs of that army, the Praetorian prefect, senators. We made all prisoners and deported them to Persis. Capturing with our own hands is an old formulation hearkening back to the ancient Assyrians, and not necessarily meant to be taken literally. Although Shapur did depict this exact scenario on later Sassanid reliefs. In the cliffs of Bishapur and Nakshi Rustam, Shapur holds Valerian firmly by the wrist, 
And a similar scene is also shown on the famous Paris cameo. Literal or not, the sources agree that Valerian was captured alive. Widely considered the lowest point in all of Roman history. It also meant that Syria and Cappadocia were essentially undefended. Keep in mind, this wasn't the end of Shapur's campaign, just a particularly auspicious beginning. As the Sassanids moved west, Valerian, his soldiers, and tens of thousands of other prisoners moved east across the Tigris into Persia. And by 260 AD, it's safe to say it wasn't only Sassanid Persia, but also, to a large extent, the Persia of King Shapur. For 20 years, he'd ruled the empire, at first with his father, but mostly alone. And now that Shapur was 45 and at the pinnacle of his reign, it's worth taking a look at just what it was he'd created. First off, before anything else, the empire was a family business. Shapur had at least two brothers and at least four sons, all of whom were granted imperial holdings. His younger brother Ardashir was governor of Kerman and possibly Merv, while his younger brother Shapur ruled Adiabene. We've already mentioned his son Hormizd, who'd been elevated to great king of Armenia, which apparently made him his father's chosen successor. The odd part was that Hormizd was Shapur's youngest son, which couldn't have left the other three feeling too special. Shapur's eldest son, Bahram, ruled the province of Gilan, east of Adiabene on the shores of the Caspian. Shapur's next eldest, Narse, was Sakan Shah, ruling over Seistan, Sindh, and Turan. Seistan, or Sakistan, was the land of the Scythians, while the other two territories were inside modern Pakistan which reflects both how far the Sassanids had expanded and how much the Kushan Empire declined. Shapur's third eldest son, also named Shapur, was Meshan Shah, ruling over the Persian Gulf territory of Mizan, the former Cherasina. And the same year as Valerian's capture, Shapur Meshan Shah apparently died and was succeeded as ruler by his wife, the Lady Denag. Apart from Shapur and his direct relations, there were also other powerful families, many of whom had held land and titles since way back under the Parthians. They provided the king with guidance, troops, and critical financial support. After the great families came the great civil servants, the viceroys, ministers, viziers, and tax collectors, along with the commanders of the guard, treasurers, chief scribes, gatekeepers, and masters of ceremony. After these figures came the Persian nobility, who provided the elite imperial cavalry. In terms of religion, as hinted at earlier, the Sassanids were exceedingly tolerant. 
In his later inscription, Shapur calls himself a devoted worshipper of Ahura Mazda. He claims to be the instrument of the gods and takes pride in the founding of fire temples. Shapur was also accompanied on campaign by the Zoroastrian priest known as Magi. But given all that, he never forced his beliefs onto his subjects. He never established Zoroastrianism as the official religion of the Persian Empire and never persecuted Christians, Jews, or other Eastern cults. Despite or because of his religious tolerance, Shapur's court featured a long-standing rivalry between two powerful clerics of different faiths. The first was the ambitious Magus Cartier, who boasted of using Sassanid conquests to further the spread of Zoroastrianism. And though Shapur kept Kartir on a pretty short leash, later Persian kings would be less judicious. The second figure was the prophet Mani, a native of Mardinu near the city of Tessaphon, born to a Jewish Christian father and a Parthian mother. At the age of twelve, and again at twenty-four, he had powerful visions of a spiritual twin— who compelled him to break with his father's sect and seek out a more perfect religion. In 240, at the age of 24, Manny traveled east as far as Turan to broaden his knowledge of the teachings of Hindus and Buddhists. He returned to Tessaphon in 242, just in time for Shapur to assume sole rule and soon joined his court and began to preach a new gospel. According to historian Werner Sunderman, Manny's religion, Manichaeism, was meant to be a rectifying and perfecting reform of almost all existing religions. Manny himself considered it the real unadulterated essence of what for their time and their land, Zoroaster, the Buddha, Jesus Christ, and the pre-Abrahamic prophets had once preached, and what had later been misunderstood or misrepresented by their disciples. Like Bardizan with Abgar, Manny attempted to convert Shapur to his new and improved faith. He even wrote a book for the king called Do Bun E Saburagan the two principles dedicated to King Shapur. And while Manny never quite succeeded in winning him over, he did get the next best thing, permission to spread Manichaeism all across the Persian Empire. Which just had to be totally cool with everyone, right? I mean, it wasn't like Persia already had an entrenched priesthood with a keen interest in maintaining the status quo. To the Magus Cartier, Zoroastrianism was already perfect, thank you very much, and Manny's attempt to modify or supplant it was little better than blasphemy. Which is kind of ironic, since Zoroaster had been persecuted by the priests of his day for preaching his divine revelation. But regardless, though Cartier would be forced to sit stewing for decades, he'd eventually seal Manny's fate. By the time of our story, 
260 AD, both Manichaeism and Zoroastrianism were strong in the empire. But the demographics had also been skewed by hundreds of thousands of Roman captives, many of whom were followers of Christianity. Though Christianity itself was still a pretty loose term. We last checked in way back in episode B27, which took place in the late 2nd century. At the time, a proto-orthodoxy was taking shape alongside some pretty exotic heresies. One way early Christians tried to hash things out was by organizing a series of church councils. The earliest councils were convened in Anatolia, mainly to confront the threat of Montanism. But by the mid-3rd century, others had been held in Rome, Carthage, Syria, and Osrowini. Though they were typically local, or sometimes provincial, their influence was beginning to grow. Decisions made at the councils were effectively non-binding, but were passed along to other communities for guidance. Church structure was still pretty loosely organized, with the senior figure being the bishop. The bishops of Rome, with the straight line from Peter, often tried to claim universal authority. But other bishops outside of Rome didn't necessarily buy that logic. Aside from the guidance of councils and bishops, there were also the influence of early Christian writers, broadly categorized as the Greek and Latin fathers. The Greek fathers, who were called that because they wrote in Greek, were intensely philosophical and labored to reconcile Christian, Jewish, and classical pagan beliefs. One of the most famous was Origen of Alexandria. Origen was a Stoic, a Neopythagorean, and a Platonic, who considered the scriptures allegorical. He also believed that Christ was the Logos, the divine animating principle of the universe. And if you listen to episode B-19, this all hews pretty closely to another Alexandrine named Philo, the Jewish scholar and uncle of the Egyptian prefect Tiberius Julius Alexander. Origen also taught the pre-existence of souls, the inferiority of the son to the father, and his conviction that even demons, and even Lucifer himself, could one day be reconciled with God. Origen traveled all across the empire, from Rome in the west to Petra in the east. And when Caracalla staged his Alexandrian massacre, Origen fled to Caesarea. Meanwhile, his unorthodox beliefs and growing popularity had made him at least one powerful enemy. The Bishop Demetrius of Alexandria ended up banishing Origen, and he spent the rest of his life in Roman Syria. Eusebius claims Origen was invited to Antioch to discuss Christian philosophy with Julia Mamaya, the mother of Severus Alexander. But in 251, Origen was jailed and tortured on the orders of the emperor Trajan Decius. A few years later, he died of his injuries at the age of 69. 
Of the Latin fathers, those writing in Latin, the most famous was probably Tertullian. Tertullian was a Roman lawyer and the son of a Roman centurion. He was apparently the first to use the Latin term Trinitas to refer to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He was also the first to assert in writing that Christianity was the vera religio, or true religion, and that other beliefs were only superstitions. But just to show that nothing's ever simple, Tertullian converted later in life to the ecstatic Christian variant known as Montanism. So, with a few decades left before going legit, Christianity was still pretty wild west. And with hundreds of thousands of Roman prisoners taken from Antioch, Edessa, and across the Near East, it's likely that Persia got a variety pack. But it's also worth noting that even before that, Persia was no stranger to Christianity. Both Edessa and Arbella already spent decades sending dozens of missionaries off to the east. And as a result, there were now thriving Christian communities in Media, Fars, and even Bactria. But it's not like the Sassanids were cherry-picking Christians or any other particular demographic. Like countless previous Near Eastern rulers, they were mainly shopping in bulk. Mass deportation was a very old tactic, hearkening back to the ancient Assyrians, but it really found its heyday under the Neo-Assyrians and the Neo-Babylonians. It was utterly demoralizing and provided cheap labor for farming and public works projects. It also brought in skilled artisans and craftsmen while denying those same skills to one's enemies. You could even ship captives off to volatile frontiers, where they'd basically be forced to defend your borders in order to preserve their own lives. The Achaemenid Persians had deported Greek captives, as did the Parthians with Crassus's legions. But that last occasion was really a one-off, and not part of any larger plan. Shapur had big plans, and many more captives, and it was time to get down to business. A great king builds cities, and Shapur used his captives to build somewhere between two and four. The maximum interpretation includes both Wuzurg Shapur, somewhere along the Tigris, and Shad Shapur in Maisan. But the two most famous and thoroughly documented are Bishapur and Gundashapur. Bishapur means either Lord Shapur or the beautiful city of Shapur, and was built along the road between Istakar and Tesaphon. According to historians Dignus and Winter, the city was modeled on the plan of a Roman military camp. Its first inhabitants were mostly Roman soldiers, taken captive in the year 260. The city was more a royal residence than a true Sassanid capital, with royal buildings taking up a quarter of the city. Warwick Ball notes that the palace mosaics were clearly Roman, of the Antioch school.
and that the adjacent temple of Anahida was also Roman workmanship. Of the six reliefs that feature Shapur, four were carved in the cliffs of Bishapur. All six reliefs show some permutation of Gordian, Philip, and Valerian defeated. There's even one depicting Shapur's victories in a series of five sequential panels. According to historian Warwick Ball, the concept was likely adopted from Trajan's column. Another relief was carved at Darabgerd, where Shapur's father Ardashird once served as castle ruler. The final relief was at Nakshi Rustam, the ancient necropolis of the Achaemenid kings. Nakshi Rustam was also the site of the Kaaba Yezartosht. The Kaaba was a freestanding cubic structure covered with inscriptions in the languages of Middle Persian, Greek, and Parthian. The primary text, the great inscription of Shapur I, records the lineage, territories, and deeds of the Persian king, in a clear imitation of Darius at Behestun. It also provides the narrative I've been quoting for some of the events in this series. A limestone cave at Bishapur holds an even more stunning find. A colossal statue of Shapur I chiseled from a single stalagmite. He's represented with a crown and diadem, wearing a tight-fitting shirt and loose trousers. The statue's left hand, lost over the centuries, once rested on the pommel of a sword. The head was also once surmounted by a metal globe called a carimbos, which alone weighed more than a ton. While most Roman soldiers went to Bishapur, most deportees went to Gundishapur. Gundishapur's original name was Ve Antioch Shapur, which translates to Shapur made this city better than Antioch which just has to be one of my favorite city names of all time. It was founded in Alemius atop a small village, not far from the ancient city of Susa. While its original purpose was housing prisoners, it later became an intellectual center, and it eventually welcomed pagan philosophers fleeing Christian persecution in Rome. In addition to building the Sassanids' new cities, the Romans built other public works. One of the most impressive is a massive dam and bridge over the Karun River at Shushtar. The structure still exists today and is called the Bandi Kaisar, or Caesar's Dam. Other Roman bridges were built nearby, at Awaz, Paipul, and Desful all within a few dozen miles of Gundishapur. And while they were at it, skilled Roman labor was also used to improve the local irrigation. Deportees were apparently given both homes and plots of land, and there's zero record of any conflicts between Roman captives and locals. A later chronicle records the building of churches and election of a bishop at Gundishapur. 
And not to sugarcoat things, but there's a decent chance they were better off than the tens of thousands of Eastern prisoners taken by Avidius Cassius at Seleucia on the Tigris or Septimius Severus at Ctesiphon. The majority of those were just sold into slavery, probably on a large agricultural estate, though a few may have seen some use in a triumph or been killed for sport in the arena. The one sure thing about Roman deportees was that their numbers were massive and growing. The capture of Antioch in 253 had alone brought prisoners in the tens of thousands, and the current campaign was sure to bring countless more. In fact, the foreign population was getting so huge that Shapur had to change his royal title to King of Kings of the Iranians and Non-Iranians. This new formulation would go on to be used by all future Sassanid rulers. But let's get down to the real burning question. What happened to the Emperor Valerian? The most extreme version is related by Gibbon. We are told that Valerian in chains but invested with the imperial purple, was exposed to the multitude, a constant spectacle of fallen greatness, and that whenever the Persian monarch mounted on horseback, he placed his foot on the neck of a Roman emperor. When Valerian sunk under the weight of shame and grief, his skin, stuffed with straw and formed into the likeness of a human figure, was preserved for ages in the most celebrated temple in Persia. But even Gibbon admits that the truth of this story may fairly be called into question. Other sources say he lived on as a captive, though Al-Tabari has Shapur cutting off his nose or possibly having him killed. But unlike the Assyrians, or Cambyses, or Darius, there's no record of Shapur committing atrocities. He'd already killed one emperor in battle, made a second pay tribute, and captured a third one alive. There was little need to raise himself up by humiliating a royal captive. Shapur's reliefs show Valerian standing upright, and gripped wrist aside, not wearing any chains. He's even depicted as wielding his sword in the famous Paris cameo. If Valerian was granted some measure of dignity, his end was likely more prosaic. Dying of old age and gilded captivity at the court of King Shapur. At the moment, however, the captive Valerian was only just trudging off east, while the armies of Shapur surged over the Euphrates into a virtually prostrate empire. Reading the future was just as easy as reading the next line of Shapur's inscription. And the land of Syria, the land of Cilicia, and the land of Cappadocia were burned, laid waste, and plundered.